Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. All right, everybody, welcome to the second edition of the Rocks Across the Pond Curling Podcast. I am Ryan McGee coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, and joining me from Southampton, England, our professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you today? I'm pretty good. I was coaching today, and I curled yesterday in our Saturday league. We won two games. We brought our magic number down to one to win the Fenton's Rink Saturday League, so... Last next weekend or two weekends from now is the finals, and all we need to do is win one or two games, and we should uh, clinch. Or our rival Lisa Farnell, skip of the team English women's teams, has to drop, has to win both her games, and we have to lose both basically to to not the, win. The magic, the magic number is one. The magic number is one, which is always where you want it to be, right? Yep. yep. Uh, would that be your third? I assume that's not. That would not be your first league win. That would be there. my first league win in English curling, surprisingly oh, wow. enough. Wow. Yeah. It's taking you this long to get a league win. Well, presume, hopefully. Hopefully. We don't even want to jinx it yet. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but, eh, you know, I think we've got the tiebreakers, the DSC, and our, our DSC is awesome. We're like around 50 centimeters right now going in after, uh, what are we at now? Hey, yes. so you guys are ahead of the curve because the world used that as their tiebreaker this weekend. And what was the what was the tiebreak there? What was the uh, fifty centimeters? Probably not good enough at world's level, I don't think. But I didn't see I didn't see what the DSC numbers were for worlds. But basically, you had three teams tied for two spots, uh, and because of DSC, China got left out. So the U.S. and the Czech Republic went into that. The equivalent of the NFL wild card games. Yeah. Um, and, and China got left out. And they did not do a traditional tiebreak, which a lot of people were complaining about. But, I mean, it's a top six. And if you can't get into the top six, then I don't think you have much to complain about if you're having to go to draw shot challenge. Yeah, I think six and six got you in this week. Six and six got you. Well, no, not China. Uh, China six and six got them out on a uh, tiebreaker. So yeah. Seven and five got you in without having to go to DSC, um, and six and six got you into the into the tiebreaker, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the way they go. I think they're trying to move away just about everywhere and curling from tiebreakers. I think Canada will probably be one of the last holdouts, but WCF oh, yeah. level are definitely, just knowing even from World Coaching World Junior Bs, they're definitely anti-tiebreakers. So. Just because it takes so much time. Part of it is just the logistics of it, and part yeah. of it's kind of fit. I, there's legitimate points. Like we we ended up in a tiebreaker when I was coaching the boys three years ago, and the Spanish team were pretty pissed because they'd beaten us, not super decisively, but they'd beaten us, and they were like, "We ended up tied, but we beat you. That should be the tiebreaker, right?" Rather than playing a tiebreaker yeah. again. So, I think it's a bit tricky if you go out on DSC in a three-way tie, but you know. DSC is yeah, part I, of the game now, so you just gotta gotta learn how to execute that. I think. And I didn't. I did not look to see if there was one team that had beaten both. I know the Czech Republic beat the U.S., um, so I'm not sure what head-to-head tiebreaker would have been there. Well, they apply head-to-head um, tiebreaker first. 
So that, that's do. definitely in the rule books. So they always apply head-to-head tiebreaker first. The issue is that now they've moved away from tiebreakers to DSC being the second tiebreaker after head-to-head. But if you have the three- or four-way tie, then you have to have beaten everyone. So. Yep. Yeah, and I, I didn't look to see if the if like the Czechs had beaten China or not, or if it was just three teams at one and one in that little mini round robin or what it was. But yeah. the U.S. got into the I guess the wild card game, uh, <laughs> the the version of wild card weekend uh, at Worlds. They put up a seven ender against Korea. Yeah, to pull, that's the, pretty to good. pull the upset, and then uh, lost to lost to Jennifer Jones. Last night in what was actually a pretty good game, they clawed back to get into a tie going into the tenth in last night, and then Canada beat them in the tenth because they had hammered. Yeah. Um, but for them to play, they the two games they played against Jones, uh, they played her pretty well. Um, they had to they started off slow but clawed back in both those games. So it's, I mean, I would call it a success for the U.S. Uh, to do what they did they they just lost the bronze medal game so they finished fourth but i think that that's an overwhelming success for for a team making its first world's appearance um and it's weird you know the how one game can change your perception beating korea completely changes your perception of of how the u.s did you look at it there were a couple games in the round robin that draw weight uh jamie couldn't find draw weight and that cost her a couple of games um, but you look, you forget all about all that now after the seven ender against Korea and making it to the semifinals. Yeah. You know, it's definitely something to build on. I'd say that both Roth and Sinclair, they're both, how, I mean, like how, how, like Jamie's really young, isn't she? She's still like mid twenties, right? Or. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, I mean that I, you make most skips don't peak really in curling until their mid thirties. I, I know there's been a bit of a youth movement lately, but still, you know, even someone like Brad Gushu, had an early 20s kind of peak, but mm-hmm. really it's been in his mid-30s that him and Mark Nichols have really become like world-dominant forces. So she's still she's still on the up curve, right? So yeah. finishing I fourth. Both, I think both women's teams are. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can't remember. Ross a little older, I think. I'm not sure if she's 30 yet, but uh, they, they're both definitely both kind of on that. I'd say still on that kind of development for a pro team kind of kind of level. So I think, and it's nice to have two teams like that, right? So yeah. building and a those, little those bit of depth teams are gonna, Yeah, those two teams are going to challenge each other and make each other better um, over the next four years. And who knows, maybe it, maybe someone else emerges in the next four years. But right now, it looks like it's going to be Roth and Sinclair kind of battling back and forth to see who's the who's the best women's team in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Women's Worlds fi- uh, finishes up this weekend. Men's Worlds is now just around the corner in fabulous Las Vegas. Uh, and you are actually going. You are going to – you're meeting up with another one of our former Oklahoma Curling Club teammates uh, and going to Worlds in Las Vegas. You're flying in later uh, this week from England uh, here to the U.S. Um, what are you looking forward to most about about going to Worlds there in Vegas? You know, it's my first time – at that, I, I never even been to a Briar or a Scotty's. Just this being part of it's because I work uh, in a university setting. It's actually a lousy time of year for these things. But this one, this one fit in really well with some work commitments I had on the West Coast, and so I figured, why not just go for the weekend? And I was going to go for the finals weekend. I want to see some live kind of top international curling. I actually just want to see how it's set up. The stuff like that kind of intrigues me. And then I, I've never really been to one of these events with a big patch, so. 
looking forward to the party patch afterwards as well. Nice. That's always a nice experience. Are you going to go see Celine? Uh, I am not going to see Celine. Um, Mark, see Mark's Sons? getting a discount from the hotel, so that tells you what his planned activities probably are. <laughs> and uh, I'll probably be either watching curling or in the poolside bar, I think, most of the weekend. Hopefully bumping into some old curling buddies, making some new ones. and. Uh, well, if you... If you do wind up doing a bit of gambling, uh, I'm not a big gambler, but the I, I have a feeling that you're not either from our times that we went bond spieling. Um, <laughs> my my go to my go to move is to hit the pie gow table. Yeah, because uh, pie gow is a high low game, and you it's a wash most of so you don't lose and don't you don't win a lot of money, but you're not going to lose your shirt, so you can sit yeah. there and play for hours and be up or down twenty bucks. Yeah, uh, but as long as you're at the table, you get the free drinks. So that's kind ah. of why the pie gow table is my go to move. That's a good that's a good pro tip, a good insider tip. Yeah, because <laughs> I will not be getting the discount from the hotel. I can assure you of that. <laughs> you're relying on mark for that <laughs> pretty much yeah uh, um who should we all right so you're you're out in europe so you might know a little bit more about because there's there's only three teams that are going to be in the men's worlds that were at the olympics uh italy south korea and then our friend nicholas adine from from sweden will be back at worlds but a lot of fresh faces that people who follow curling may not may not recognize who do you think that that we, you know, the of the names that we wouldn't recognize? Who do you think might surprise us this week and win some games that uh, that maybe they shouldn't, or you know, get it? Who who has a chance to make the playoffs that maybe we wouldn't uh, look at? I think Bruce Mowat. By the end of the week, people will be talking a lot about him. He like he uh, so. In many ways, he's the better Scottish curling team at the moment than Kyle Smith. If you're going off this year's kind of year-to-date order of merit points. Yeah, he's doing great on the slams. Yeah, well, he won a slam. Uh, the, the big pickup over the summer is they added Grant Hardy, who is probably not known to many people outside of Scotland. He, he There's like a tier... We'll call it tier 2.5 circuit in Scotland called the Scottish Curling Tour. And Grant Hardy basically ran the table last year. Every event he entered in Scotland, he won. He won the Scottish Mixed. He won the World Mixed. Uh, he just wasn't in a position to kind of, I guess, outlay the cash or time commitment to go kind of spiel around the world like some of the sponsor teams are. But Muit picked him up. Muit's a former world junior champ. And they're kind of basically getting year-round coaching support through British curling. And, you know, if not, if Roth and Sinclair are going to be battling it out for the next decade on the U.S. side, it's definitely going to be Smith and Mewitt. And Mewitt's a very, very cool customer and a really sharp skip. And he's early 20s. And he's, you know, he's a really sharp skip. I've, I've played enough, I haven't played against him, but played in the several events that he's been in. And uh he will he'll do damage. I'm not sure if he's ready to medal. It's his first time at that event, but I wouldn't be surprised at the end of the week he'd medal. You're looking for a team kind of maybe a little bit lower down the table that might start to pull off some some upsets. Might be Yap Van Dorp out of the Netherlands. They kind of they were in the Olympic qualifying tournament. Another he's kind of a, a kind of mid 20s skip. He's got a really young front end. They're still they're still actually eligible for juniors, but uh, they've been going hard the last three years. 
And I, I, they, they're really good at kind of steadily building. I think they're top 40s in the world right now in terms of order of merit points. And basically every year they get a little bit better. They, they kind of go out and play a little higher level competition. And uh, they've got really good coaching support. And that's a team that I think will become a regular world's team kind of over the next quad and one to keep in mind. And you, you would never think of Dutch curling even yeah. five, six years ago at this stage. But they've got a good team and good support in place. So... That's one that might kind of start to pull a few upsets off okay. this week. Are they going to be wearing orange? They wear orange, yep. It's oh, the right. national colors. That's all yeah. that matters. Yeah. Um, I assume Brad Gushu is the player to beat in that tournament. Well, him and Nicodine. I think it's it's 1A and 1B. I think it, I, I'd be – like if Gushu – you know, if, if Nicodine or Brad Gushu don't make playoffs, it's as big of an upset and shock as home in, at the Olympics. I mean, anyone can have an off week, obviously. But, you know, if there's two teams you almost want to pencil into playoff positions, it's those two. And then, you know, when you get into playoff games, anything can happen, right? Like uh, like Sinclair was only a few shots away from pulling up what would have been a pretty big upset against an undefeated team yep. at 500 last night. So at that point, I think... Anything goes, so especially there's no page in Worlds now, so uh, that, that that kind of can, can still lead. I think the new format will lead to a few more upsets, let's put it that way. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say Adin and Gushu are, are locks in terms of gold medal, given the new format. My next question was, will Brad Gushu lose a game? So I'm, saying, I'm guessing you're predicting that he'll drop at least one. I I I would not be surprised if the round robin played out very similar to the women's, in which Sweden and Canada basically go through either undefeated or you know two losses max. But again, you get to the semifinals, and then it's you know <laughs> something crazy so can happen, right? So they've expanded worlds. Would the format that the Briars using now work better at? For, for Worlds than it would for the Briar? Like, would it, would it be better if you just went ahead and expanded to 16 and ran the two pools and then used that to decide your your knockout tournament? I, I kind of like... I prefer the new Briar format over the new Worlds format. I think okay. that the Briar format... Has, it does a better job of sorting for the stronger teams over the course of the week and builds the bigger and bigger games. Uh, I think there's going to be pressure. Like what they, they basically redid this at the last AGM. They're probably going to leave it in place for this quad. But one of the proposals on the table was something very similar to the championship pool format they're using in Canada now. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see 16 to 20 kind of curling countries around the globe really being able to consistently field competitive tier one level teams, which we're probably not that far away from, then there's going to be a lot of pressure to make sure that a lot of those named teams are in the worlds every year, right? There's going to, if you can, if you've got like 16 to 20 countries that can field, you know, top 30, top 40 teams, it's going to be tough to tell them that, you know, you've got a top 30 team, but you didn't make the worlds this year, right? Because they expanded this time, basically to get that third Asia Pacific team in there because of 
how well curling does in those three countries in Japan, Korea, and China in terms of TV, right? That's been, yeah. that was one of the big reasons for, for going to this format. Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. It's the growth of the game. The, the place you see it the most is actually the, the tournament that I tend to coach in, this World Junior B tournament that gets no coverage. But I've been going three years now, and <laughs> it sounds bonkers, but countries you wouldn't think of having any curling program take off really fast. So Kazakhstan was not like we're very technically flawed like not a very strong country three years ago they they brought in some coaches top level coaches worked with that same group of players and all of a sudden they're fielding credible junior teams right and they're still those some of those kids are like 16 17 so if they get four or five years of playing internationally and top coaching countries like that you haven't heard of are turkey turkey's always bouncing in and out of the a and the b pool in juniors now right no one thinks of turkey as a curling country yeah. they've got one facility but you know people who do well in juniors tend to carry over to the international level and so these countries that don't even make the world adults yet are kind of starting to punch through in the world juniors and i think it's going to be an open question over the next two two cycles you know how many these countries can sustain and how many of these countries can start kind of winning medals that you wouldn't even have thought of having a curling rink probably didn't even have a curling rink say a quad ago and england england's in that right england's in the england world games i mean i'm not gonna lie i think uh, i'm actually scared that we will fall down to the seas at like the adult level there's not a sea pool yet in juniors but there's talk of it because basically both sides now have 24 teams of each gender mm -hmm. at the b pool and that's basically max capacity so there's debates about what to do because we're probably going to pick up another four to 10 countries just out of the Olympic bounce. And so a lot of conversation at WCF level right now is what, what do we do with the juniors? And, you know, uh, C pool is possibility and there's no guarantee that England stays in the B pool, right? At, at kind of any level. So that, and that's just not so much that England's going backwards as so many countries are coming on board. So many countries get a lot of support. And it doesn't really take that much to build up an international curling program. You know, a lot of these countries that have really taken off, they don't have numbers. They may only have a hundred or a couple hundred curlers and maybe one rink. But if you go out and hire a top international coach, throw some resources at players that can basically do it year round as a job, it, you can really kind of, you know, start developing some talent pretty quickly. Okay. So to close our discussion on worlds, Team USA will be. I don't. I don't know whether you call them Team Persinger or Team Ruinen. Uh, I think Rich Ruinen skipped at U.S. Nationals and threw third, and Greg Persinger uh, definitely threw fourth. Yeah. Um, and he had a great tournament. One of the big reasons that that they were able to do what they did and beat Heath McCormick uh, in the finals there at Nationals was how good Greg Persinger curled. Uh, this is the first time that this tournament is in the U.S. since nineteen uh, since 2008. 1908 would have been way back there. Since 2008, first time it's been in the U.S., uh, that was in Grand Forks. And Rich Ruinen was actually on Team USA that year, too. He was he played third for Craig Brown. So what can we, what can we expect from this team in a kind of a watered-down men's worlds field? You know, they, they play on tour a fair bit, and so they'll be very comfortable against this level of play. I'm not sure, if, I'm not sure how often they've played like Gushu or Adin, but they certainly play in the kinds of events that Gushu and Adin might pop up in. So 
I don't think I don't think it's I don't think they're going to be kind of deer in headlights kind of effect. So I think they'll they'll do well. I think, um, you know, they're certainly not in that kind of a tier of Adin and Gushu, but um, they'll certainly be fighting it out end of the week. And probably you know, I, I, not off the top of my head, but there's probably five or six teams that are going to be fighting for those other four playoff spots, and the U.S. will certainly be in that mix. And I think as we saw with Jamie Sinclair, it's going to be. You know, one or two key draws or one or two key shots and key games, that, that's probably going to be the difference there. But I certainly expect them to be contending for a playoff spot by the end of the week. As as a veteran team, and they have been, they've played, yeah, Persinger and Ruinen have been around for a while. So as a veteran team, they're going to get to play against some of those younger teams. Uh, they start off with Japan and the Netherlands, uh, their first two draws. So a chance yeah. to maybe use some of that veteran savvy to get to get a good start and start off 2-0 before they face uh, before they face South Korea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that'll be interesting for sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I was very surprised the amount of coverage available for Worlds in the US was was good for the women's uh, it was on Olympic Channel which is a NBC Universal uh, product. And some of the games were on NBC Sports Channel. Uh, the surprising thing to me was the games that were on the Olympic Channel on their website and on their app, I didn't have to sign in. So I did not have to have a cable subscription in order to watch those games. And those were mainly the – basically they took the WCF field and slapped the Olympic Channel logo in one of the corners uh, and just took that feed. Uh, but it was great to have that option to watch Worlds, and I assume I haven't seen any release from USA Curling, but I assume the same will be the case for the men. So that's good. More more coverage of Team USA means more eyeballs, means hopefully keeping you know keeping up with this freight train of hype that that USA Curling uh, has gotten since since the Olympics, and really led to an incredible increase in number of people coming to our curling club in Richmond, our arena club. Uh, we just started our beginner league on Thursday, our first beginner league. We have sold out three beginner leagues. That's about a hundred curlers who signed up for a beginner league and our regular league that is going to run after that has also already sold out. So it was fun. Uh, we had a really good group, a really fun loving group. And what I was surprised at was it was a very, it, it trended very young. Like I'm almost 35. A lot of them were a lot younger than I am. We actually had a lot of millennials, uh, for lack of a better term, yeah. uh, coming coming out to our beginner league. And I think that's great to see because that's what you want as a curling club. You know, is this uh, is this going to be? Can we add curling to the list of vaguely Canadian things that millennials are embracing, along with uh, poutine and legalized marijuana and universal health care? Yeah, I think, I mean, I kind of joked uh, in 2010, there was already a little bit of a weird hipster angle when we were starting the Oklahoma Curling Club, right? Uh, I think part of that's how you market it, but I do think there's a weird way that like the millennial hipster into alternative sports, you know, I, I remember when we were in grad school, uh, a lot of the grad students were doing bocce, a bocce week at a local yeah. bar, right? And there's a way that certain kind of millennial that's into kind of doing things like that would also probably find curling kind of a nice niche alternative sport to do. So I'm not surprised that, that they kind of latched on to that, 
that demos latched onto it. It's pro I honestly think half it has to do with how you're marketing it. So how are you guys marketing it? Uh, we did a lot of Facebook adverts, Facebook and Instagram advertising, which I think is one of the reasons that it kind of skewed younger. Uh, and it really wasn't even like the alternative crowd, uh, like you said. A lot of, we had a few of those, but a lot of people who were just, um, you know, people who also watch the NFL and also watch Major League Baseball who mm. uh, came out and tried curling and fell in love with it the first time that we got them into a game format. And this is this is kind of what the beginner league was. We, we focused the learn to curl on getting them to throw just as many rocks as possible. And the beginner league is where we've kind of started to teach, okay, here's what the scoring is. Here's, you know, vaguely what strategy is going to be, even though you – when you're dealing with beginners, there really isn't a strategy. It's just you throw a bunch of draws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It's good. They, they, they like a little strategy talk. Yeah, I, did, I gave a five-minute strategy talk on uh, – we're doing a learn to curl uh, like a series of lessons, a five-minute strategy talk, and it was basically explaining what shot was, why you want to keep the middle open when you have hammer, mm -hmm. what hammer is, and why you want to junk it up when you don't have hammer. And that's about as far as we – we got with strategy, but like you said, for beginners, it's just a matter of getting rocks in play, and then yeah. over time, they kind of pick up some tips uh, along the way. So as I'm coaching, this is the first time that I've been in a situation where I'm coaching beginners because we're not playing. We're basically we're given a team of four that we're coaching. So it's the first time I've been in that position. Like, how much is too much, or how do I? How, do, how should I go about introducing some of these concepts to people as they're going through this quick six-week beginner league? Uh, I would say for most first-time coaches, uh, they, they overcoach. That's kind of my one big tip is watch the overcoaching, <laughs> and they assume way more knowledge and comprehension uh, than – often beginner curlers have so i think the big key is not so much to tell but to ask mm -hmm. so rather okay. than me kind of going through here's what strategy is I kind of got everyone around the house and i said okay does anyone know what shot rock is and out of 30 people two hands went up right so let them explain and then kind of reiterate it it's just kind of like good teaching technique and then also a kind of a lot of visuals so kind of explaining strategy show stones in the rings and move them around to explain the concepts okay. um and it's it's going to be a lot more basic than you assume but the thing that's funny is that people then start to pick stuff up pretty quickly too it's and a lot of it's also just they start playing they kind of try some things out you explain why they ask you questions um and ideally what you want over the course of those six weeks is that they play more and more games, your role's less and less, you're more just cheering in the background and then just there to answer questions or maybe correct, you know, serious etiquette mistakes or, you know, serious okay. problems. But mostly let them play and have fun, right? So Yeah, that's that's kind of what they told us too, was after the second week we're almost not even required to be there. Like it, it's nice to be there for every week, but the, the first two are really only the important two. And even right now I'm mainly going over, okay, here are your issues coming out of the hack. Here's why you were way off from your target. Um, here's, you know, what I did to correct the same things that I went through when, when I started, um, you know, that, that 
that's the stuff I'm kind of focusing on now, uh, way more so than strategy. Cause right now there really is no strategy cause you're just hoping that rocks get in the rings. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, and it's just a matter. And then it's the other thing is, you know, they just, they're also still figuring out if they want to do this. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think just letting them figure that out and answer that question is also important. Right. So if you get half of those people coming back from beginner league into regular leagues and becoming regular members, I think that's a really, really good turnover rate. So, Yeah, and so far, I think last episode you said of the 96 to 100 people that we've got in beginner league, I think you said 40 would be a good number if we got that uh, yeah. into into actually joining the club. So that's what we're shooting for. So far, it looks good. Uh, through just one of three beginner leagues, we already had a bunch of people sign up for the regular league, which now we're having to look at getting a second one since that one's full now. Um, so it's really exciting time for our club and hopefully for uh, for all of you listening, hopefully it's an exciting time for your clubs too. Uh, if you have examples um, that you've done in beginner leagues or you have you know success stories that you want to share, by all means, uh, send that to us. You can contact us. Uh, by email uh, at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. Uh, or you can you know, leave us a note on really anywhere on the internet. Uh, leave, a, leave a message here on, the, on our SoundCloud, um, and we'll, we'll get back to you. Uh, any complaints, send them to Jonathan. Uh, but any <laughs> compliments and questions, by all means, send them to me. Uh, and we'll... You know, in the in the spirit of talking about coaching, we'll move on to our next segment, which we actually need a name for. We don't want to call it Coach's Corner because Hockey Night in Canada would sue us. Uh, so we need a name for this segment where Jonathan talks about um, various teaching points uh, for curling. So if you have a name for this segment, please contact us. Uh, we we're struggling to come up with a good name for for this coaching segment. Uh, and for the first segment, uh, I gave Jonathan a choice of a bunch of different concepts, and the one we settled on was positive handle. Uh, this was something that I first, you know, since I, I started doing this, you know, eight years ago, started curling about eight years ago. Uh, and this was a concept that I wasn't a really aware of until the 2015 Briar. I was watching BC, Team BC, which was Jim Cotter, uh, and Ryan Kuhn was playing third for him. And there was a conversation while Kuhn was in the hack uh, where one of the front end uh, just kept reiterate, reiterating to him, posy Ryan, posy. Uh, and I had no idea what on earth they were talking about. So I remember messaging you and being like, what on earth are these guys talking about? And I remember that, like, what does he mean by posy? And a lot of it was that particular BC team looked like they said the word bro a lot. Um, <laughs> so I think that had a lot to do with it. So then you came, told me that it had to do with making sure that he had enough rotation on his handle. Uh, and that's called positive handle whereas a lot you what the way you explained it was a lot of club curlers to get extra finish uh or extra curl will throw a lighter handle with less rotation and it gets that extra curl there at the end but you can't do that on briar rice or you'd get in a lot of trouble you will die i think i so first of all um like the, the the thing is most people will must they're really fortunate to play at one of these events will probably never have the opportunity to play on ice of this quality. And 
There's a lot of things going on. Part of it's just having the best ice techs, best quality water, best everything. And then part of it's what they also do with these events is they often what's called paper the rocks, run some sandpaper over the running surface. And what that does is produce that really nice hook and curl, right? So part of the attraction of the TV game is you can play a lot of come arounds. The stones really snap really late. And if you throw a soft kind of typical club curlers throw about one to maybe two rotations the length of the ice mm-hmm. you can get away with that on, on club ice and even arena ice sometimes arena ice it's good to have that soft release actually <laughs> but if you throw that on on those kinds of ice conditions you can turn a stone that might curl five to six feet into a stone that will curl 10 to 11 feet like no joke because the world junior bees is is kind of played under those ice conditions and the guys I was coaching the first year, they didn't believe me. And I remember the first and second game, it was like they're throwing draws and overcurling by five feet. And they're like, what's going on? And I'm like, you've got like pause, you got to throw a positive handle. And they I finally clicked in and they, they kind of got their rotations up. So it is an important skill. I think even for club curlers, it's important to have a good positive release that a really common fault is either one rotation or a half rotation or it's quite common to see curlers throw no rotation, which is basically mm-hmm. a knuckleball. And then you're just, you know, in baseball, that's great because you don't know where the ball's going. In curling, it's terrible because you don't know where the stone's going, right? Um, so basically, um, there's a bunch of techniques for it. I think the one thing I want to emphasize, first of all, is that probably release is, if I was coaching a developing curler, so someone coming out of Beginner's League for over the next two years, I would say release is the last thing I look at with a curler like that because, but it's often the first delivery fault that curlers kind of um, pick up. And that's often <laughs> because the last, their skip, why did I miss? And the skip will go, well, you popped it out wide or you did something weird on release because that's really easy to see from the skip's perspective. But often those cause those delivery faults are something down chain. So when I'm coaching, I'm actually looking at how they're sliding, how their hips are set up, how balanced they are. And is so often the, it's often those kind of bad releases are caused by them correcting at the last second for their not being being online. So that, that's kind of the first tip. And I asked I asked Jonathan to go over uh, to go over this topic today, and he responded by writing 1,700 words on it, uh, <laughs> which we which we have posted and will link to. Um, it'll be should be in the description of this podcast and we'll make sure to have it on Twitter and Facebook as well. So you can go through, there's a lot of pictures, um, very, very detailed information on, on, on your release, on how to improve your release, uh, written by Jonathan. Um, so what's the best way to fix a bad release? So, I mean, I'd say step one is, um, the grip. So how people hold the stone. And so, uh, I, I, I'm not sure. What did you guys tell the beginner curlers at your club about, like, how to grip the stone? We try to be, we try to tell them to have a balanced grip. Um, we, we don't want them, you know, just holding it with three fingers at, you know, the tail end of the of the nozzle. Uh, we want a nice balanced grip. I tell them, and it's part of how I teach them. Um, out turn in turn is I tell them to put their thumb at the nose of the stone and to point both of those at whatever hand is being extended to show them whatever turn and then bring it to 12 o'clock and release. Yeah. 
Okay, so that's the standard standard grip. I've, I've actually got a couple of photos posted. I, I think, so one of the things is, it's like with any like coaching topic in any sport, diff, there's different schools of thought. One of the things that's really interesting is the Europeans teach a very different grip from the Canadians. So I was taught the kind of hold at the gooseneck, which is kind of the, the thinning out part at the top of the handle, right? And that mm -hmm. you, you kind of hold there with your index finger and middle finger and thumb and kind of squeeze there and keep your other fingers together, wrist high. And that's kind of the very classic curling Canada delivery. The other one is what's called in Europe, at least the Norway grip. I, I don't know why, I assume it's the Norwegians invented it, but that one's a bit more hold the stone further back, wrist low, and then the big issue there is where you place the thumb. So you actually differ your placement per turn. So thumb on the top for um, out turn, thumb on the inside for in turn. It's probably easier to look at the pictures in the blog post yeah. to get a sense of what I'm talking about. But the theory there, the way it was explained to me was think of how you use a key to unlock a door. And if you actually just go test it out, you, you actually naturally when applying a counterclockwise uh, rotation assuming you're right-handed, will put your thumb on top to get the leverage, and if you're putting a clockwise rotation, put it on the side to generate the leverage. It's the same thing. It's about getting that little bit of leverage to get the stone spinning. The other key with grip is keeping your fingers together, because a lot of people spread their fingers out, then especially the index and the ring finger can kind of start doing funky stuff. So you want your fingers together, kind of so no funky action on release, and you want them tight so that when you let the stone go, the stone goes out smoothly. So that's kind of the, the tip with uh, grip. So that's basically step one I'd look at. Uh, step two is delivery arm. And this is kind of where we get the second part of the positive release. Is a lot of people think they've got to be kind of super, super straight with the arm. But actually having a bit of a bend in the arm is good. I, I'm guilty of having my arm straight out. Are you like super straight out? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are kind of taught that straight out, straight down, and you, you kind of almost want to think like a rifle, like aiming down there. Mm -hmm. But actually, having a little bend in your arms nice because it gives you, it keeps you a bit like softer. I think of it as a little soft, like kind of fine tuning mechanism, right? That as you kind of develop as a curler, that's one of the ways you get a little bit of touch is you can kind of have a little bend, and if you come out a little light, you can kind of extend a little bit and if you want to pull back you can pull back just a little bit so you don't you want to kind of in an area where you can make a little slight adjustment not not huge adjustments because that'll throw you off but just a little touch and the other reason that's important we'll get to kind of when you release it is that that's what lets you extend into a positive release so that's kind of the second tip so you want to get the grip when you get in the hack, and then as you start driving out of the hack and bottoming out in your slide, that's where you want to make sure you have that soft bend. And then the release part's at the very end, obviously. And so there's basically two tips to that. So one's kind of how you get the curl going. And I think most people either do it way too fast or way too slow. So if you do it too fast, that means you probably will have a spinner, which by which I mean a stone that rotates a lot. And if you do it too slow, that's where you often end up with your with your softy release, like the, the kind of not rotating one. So ideally, you want to do it in the last three to four feet of your release. And you want to be pretty consistent with how you apply it. And if you do that, like the last three to four feet, um, that normally will get you about three rotations. And a really easy way to test for that, if you have a couple of buddies, is you have each of them hold an object, like a gripper or a cup or something, have one person mark where you start applying the curl, 
the other person mark where you let the stone go and then kind of visualize how long that, like just take a look at how long that distance is. And my kind of rule of thumb is about a brush handle's length. So it's a pretty simple test you can do. So do it a couple times, test and try to adjust until you get it right. And you'll probably get rotation pretty good there. And then I think the last trick is like the release itself, the follow through. So the way I like to think of it is you want to initiate the curl first, and then once you get your kind of wrist going, that's when you want to start extending the arm. And it really is an extension motion, not a shove. So not you don't want to be pushing a lot of power on it. You almost want the arm to like, let the stone pull your hand into full release. And the idea there is that as you're sliding out, you're, al you're always losing momentum. So really with the positive release, part of what you're doing is letting the stone accelerate away from you a little bit. So that's kind of what you want to think about is initiate curl first, then extend arm, and then as you let it go, you just want to make sure your hand is clean, like has a not doing anything funky on letting the stone go. So the, the, the kind of classic tip with that is make sure your hand comes out to a handshake position, just straightforward enough. Hand, yeah, shaking hands with the skip is what I always heard. Yeah, exactly like that. So just like let it go cleanly. And if your hand's doing, again, you have somebody check as you're letting it go. If you're doing like an off to the one side or off to the other, that often means you're doing something weird at the end. The other common one is people jump back with their hand. And that's not great because you might be pulling a bit of momentum off the stone, messing up your the speed of your stone. So you want is like you want it to pop right out of your hand. I think like one of my favorite releases to watch is Eve Meerhead. She's just so clean every single time, the exact same motion with her two fingers if you watch it. And it's clear she's just thrown, you know, release after release after like probably, you know, thousands of stones a year just focusing on release. And the stone just is always so, so clean out of her hands. And it's not surprising she's such a kind of straight shooter on her hits because of that she with the canada form or the the norway form she uses the norway form i i would say that actually even a lot of the top canadian pros don't use the official canada form especially maybe up at junior level you still see a few well, and you it, watch Kevin Cooey, and it's yeah. <laughs> I think his is all his, his is all his own. I think his is all his own. I, I, one thing is like a lot of the pros, and you, you kind of like I said, you kind of talk, walk around, and talk around. People have like a lot of different theories, it's especially with release. It's a lot like golf swings, where different instructors have different theories, and um, a lot of them aren't in the manual because some you know someone like Kevin Cooey's delivery, he's practiced it a lot and then found some stuff that works. And a lot of the pros actually have multiple releases, right? So like, so like Rachel Holm is the most explicit about this. If you ever like watch her, like uh, she'll get asked, right? I think often by Lisa Weagle when she's in the hack, she'll go, how are you going to throw it? And she'll often say straight through. And that's really her super positive kind of laser release. But she's also got kind of a bit more of a classic Canadian style release. I think that's a bit more intended for come around shots. So she actually deliberately has at least two releases I've heard her talk about and maybe more just to kind of get different rotation to do different things. But that's, that's such an advanced skill to have. It's not really worth a club curl having because that'll just mess you up. That's someone who's out on the ice, you know, four to six hours a day practicing stuff. They can, they can do something that advanced. And I think a lot of the pros really do have little subtle things they do. It's not, it's not worth kind of copying off the TV, like saying Kevin Cooey does that, so I should do that, because that can get you in a whole lot of mess, because you're not probably not sliding like Kevin Cooey either, right? So, so. find 
So find what works for you and then stay with that is basically what you're saying. I'd say find what works for you, probably something pretty close to one of the two manualized versions. So either the Norwegian or the Canadian. And it helps if you can get access to a coach who can kind of give you some feedback on, you know, is it doing something funky or not? Are you getting, you know, are you getting the right number of rotations and are you releasing it straight as opposed to off to one of the sides? Those are the two big keys, I'd say. Is there any time where you want to over-rotate the stone? I'm guessing on takeout shots where you're trying to keep trying to keep it really straight. Do you want to over-rotate the stone then? And then what does, what does you know, throwing it, I, I say like a top, you know, spinning it like a top, what effect does that have once you, like if you're trying to hit and roll, what effect does that have after it makes contact with another object? Uh, I don't, I mean, I think in theory you could throw a big spinner if you wanted a lot of action off a of stone. I think... Kind of like a cue ball. Like a cue ball. I think a lot of the pros don't do that. The the way they solve that problem is power and then kind of picking what side they hit. That's that's a whole other post in itself. Yeah. The spinner is actually often used not so much for the big weight shots. It's more if you've got to do something weird and throw something super straight. So let's say you've got to go through a port with like backline or hack weight and you just want mm-hmm. to throw it right down that path. Like a skilled skip or a skilled player might be able to do that. But again, that's something you got to practice a lot. My advice is always just stick to the basics first and then after the basics get boring and you got time to practice and maybe muck around with uh, a lot of this other stuff, right? But make sure you get the, the basics down first, I'd say. All right, well, there's plenty more that you have written about that we will link to, and we hope to do that again very soon. We'll, we'll take suggest- we, have a, we have a list of a bunch of topics that we want to get to eventually, and uh, if you have any ideas, again, email us, uh, tweet at us, uh, leave a message here on SoundCloud, uh, and we will, we will get back to you. Um, our podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, pretty much anywhere that uh, that you can find and uh, and subscribe subscribe to a podcast. So please subscribe, uh, leave a review if you liked us. Uh, if you didn't like us, uh, let us know what we did wrong, uh, and we will see you later. Next time we talk to Jonathan, he may be in the states and he may be uh, working on his tan poolside at uh, Vegas World. So until next time, uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot. See you soon. Right